My name is Pastor Kyle Kelly. I am in charge of Equipping and Leadership, which is uh, our discipleship ministry here at the 1910, and we're very excited about uh, being here. Amy and I just celebrated our seventh month anniversary yesterday. Uh, we mark everything since we've been in Bernie. Yeah. Yeah. It is a great place. We love this church. We, we love this uh, community. It's a great place. So as we started this series several weeks ago about Tweet That Mess, I think we underestimated the amount of Twitter followers we had in our church. So we, we thought there'd be hundreds, and there's like eight of you. And so <laughs> maybe not everyone fully understands the, the Twitter universe as, uh, as it has apparently Bernie is not a part of that explosion. And that's okay. Most of you that actually follow Tweet That Mess and do tweet and, and, and retweet and favorite and all that stuff that most of you don't even understand what I'm talking about, um, uh, joined after we started the series. And so some of you have really gotten into it. Um, it's a phenomenal communication tool that obviously you're not a part of, but uh, um, if you were, it's a hunt, any letter, anything you use, you got 140 characters to say what you want to say. Some of you that are new to it don't realize that you write like nine paragraphs and then you send it and only the first 40 letters go in there and your message makes no sense whatsoever. And then you're thinking, hey, why does this work? Well, you need to read the instructions on what Twitter does. But the idea behind Twitter is that you make a statement or for some of you, tell us what you're having for lunch. Um, You make a statement and you put it out there for everybody to kind of know what's on your mind or what's on your heart or what you're doing. You can take a picture and put it all together. So when we started thinking about the series... There's a lot of things that are quotable or important that Jesus said that would be retweetable. They would be something that would be very, very valuable. Again, I know you don't know what we're talking about. Just follow me anyway. Um, How many of you know what a hashtag is? Oh, fantastic. How many of you use a hashtag? All right, 13 to 14. Good. Okay. Um, We were at a conference years ago or several years ago, and the guy said, okay, the hashtag for this event is da-da-da-da-da. And uh, people are grabbing their phones, and he said, how many of you don't know what that is? And I mean, almost everybody's hand went up, and he said, well, it really doesn't matter what the hashtag is, because you don't even know what it does. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, now it's the number sign, if you don't know. We'll show you here in just a second. But one of the things that we thought was really cool about the series is take some, maybe some difficult things that Jesus said, or some just really profound things that he said. So if you were to tweet this next verse, and put it on Twitter, and it makes a statement like this, it's Luke 14, 26. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Most of you, if you read that on Facebook, if you're more Facebook friendly, or on Instagram, or some of you may be on Zanga. Anybody know what that is? All right, three girls. Thank you very much. Uh, um, That's way old now, but anyway... If you were to see that statement, hey, my church is quoting, you thinking, what kind of church cult do you go to? That is a weird statement that you would say that Jesus himself says these words, if, you, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be a disciple of mine. A few weeks ago, Pastor Robert was up here and he told us that we ought to love our neighbor as ourself and we ought to love ourselves as Christ wants us to love it. And now I'm telling you, several weeks later, you need to hate everybody in this world. And some of you are already good at that. So you think, hey, I'm a disciple. I'm ready. I got this down. Oh, I hate my mother-in-law. Can, you know, we can we add that. 
And I am proud to tell you, I do not have that, that uh, same feeling. I love my mother-in-law. She's actually here. <laughs> um, <laughs> she is phenomenal. The best mother-in-law I've ever had. It's great. It's great. It's the only one, too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, so if, 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 if we're in this crazy idea that Jesus himself is telling us that we ought to hate all these people, how does that reconcile with the entire idea of the gospel of love and what love really is? Well, today, obviously, you're paying attention to culture. You know that the word love is all over the culture. Love wins. Love is important. What is love? Well, you guys know that love is just not the embracing of whatever you want. Love has boundaries. Good parenting love says no regularly. It teaches us how to stay inside those boundaries. Love is not always yes. This here is telling us something very unique. So for the AW that do tweet, I wrote down a a possible tweet on this idea that anyone anyone who does not carry his cross cannot be my disciple. Listen, the cross is a very important symbol. Um, one of the things that, that I think is really important about uh, the cross, a lot of us wear it. You've got it tattooed. You've got jewelry. You've got a ring. You've got a necklace or earrings, whatever it may be. But the cross is very important. And Jesus says, if you're my disciple, you will carry the cross. And in my experience, for a lot of us, sometimes we just say, you know, I'm going to be religious and, and I'm going to make a cross in my workplace or at school. And I look, I, I took two paper clips and made a cross. I can carry this cross. This is very powerful. I mean, this means a lot to me. I look at this and I realize what Christ did on the cross. This is a big deal. This is great. I'm going to carry this because I will take the burden of the cross seriously. And you put it on your desk at work and you're really excited about it when another believing coworker comes along and you say, look, I'm bearing my cross today. I picked it up. Look. And then the non-believer comes and you kind of palm it on the side and go, hey, what's going on? You know, and, and we're a little afraid of it or it goes in our pocket or whatever. And some of us are a little bit more bold. You say, listen, I'll invest in two pencils. I'll put it together. I got a rubber band invested in this thing too, and I was able to get it to stay. I can't keep it straight, but if I could, I mean, I'm going to carry my cross. I'm going to put it in my cup holder on my office desk, or I'm going to write with it at school. I mean, I'm carrying my cross because it's convenient, and I can put it where I want. Years ago, there was from California. He carried a cross, about 85 pounds, everywhere he went for like 19 years. He went into a restaurant, he went to the grocery store, he carried it with him. Eventually, he put a little wheel on the back of his cross so it wouldn't scratch up the floor or drag as he walked. But he was carrying the load of that cross everywhere he went. People thought, man, you're crazy. People in the church told him he was crazy. He said, listen, I can't go anywhere without considering what it takes to pick up this cross and take it with me. I'm not going to be wasteful. I'm not going to do dumb things. I'm not going to go to places I shouldn't be. I certainly can't go to places that are inappropriate to take the cross. I have to think about carrying the cross. So we may have a paper clip or we may have a pencil, but when Christ tells, Christ tells us to pick up the cross, he has something else in mind. Now, I know Chach was worried that I wouldn't be able to handle this because I don't go to CrossFit. <laughs> Hill Country CrossFit, the uh, phone number's in your bulletin. The, um, <laughs> now, this would affect the way you did your life if you have to carry this cross everywhere you go. Let's say we pick this thing up every day. And I'm going to take it everywhere I go. Things would be different. This is what Christ is talking about. He's not telling you necessarily to pick up a cross physically and carry it around. But he is telling us to be my disciple, you have to carry this around. It's powerful. It's heavy. It is substantial. 
and it changes how we can move about and what we participate in, but it also tells everybody what we believe. It's cumbersome, but picking up the cross is cumbersome. It's a heavy reminder that the cross was an instrument of death that Satan meant for evil and God turned around for good. For you and I that didn't have access, an ability to get to God, Jesus died on the cross so that we'd have that access. And so as he's teaching before his death, he is telling have to pick that up daily. Now one of the things the scripture talks to us about is it says to the Jew, the cross is a stumbling block. And that's because the cross fits into Jewish culture. They understand that the cross, they understand that the Messiah is coming, they understand that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. They've got to deal with the cross. So it's kind of a, you know, I've got to negotiate my way around it. I've got to figure out what to say about it. I've got to do something with it to the Jews, to the religious people that understand the Messiah is coming. But the scripture says to the Gentile, the non-believer, it's just foolishness. Why would you pick up that burden? Why would you have to carry that? that? And it doesn't even make any sense. Why would a guy at one time in history, one place geographically on the earth, be nailed to a cross, claim to be put into a grave and stand up? I don't even understand it, so I'm not even going to bother with it. I'm just going to disconnect myself from it and say, it's just foolishness. It's stupid. But Jesus didn't act like it was stupid. Jesus made it very, very important. One of the things that considered as a candidate to be hired by the Dell Carnegie School of Motivation is when he talked to his disciples, in all four Gospels we see this story, he's telling the disciples, listen, following me will cost you a lot. He actually says to them, because of me, for my sake, they will hate you. Now, he didn't explain exactly what was going to take place, but we know throughout church history that every single disciple was executed except for John, who was then exiled to an island that he spent the rest of his life. And they weren't just killed, they were brutally executed. Some of them were beheaded, some of them were hung on a cross, some hung on a cross upside down. One was hung by his legs and impaled until he bled to death in front of everybody. The beheading was to a, a disciple that stood firm, and they gave him a chance to denounce Christ, and when he didn't, the swordsman took off his head. Boiled in oil, brutally killed, Jesus told them, if you are going to follow me, it's going to be expensive. It's going to cost you a lot. Now, that. Say, listen, I want you to buy 10,000 of what I'm selling and, and selling, and a year from now, you're going to be bankrupt. Listen, I want you to work for my company. We're going to go out of business, and you're going to go broke. You don't usually recruit like that. But Jesus wanted them to know there was a price to pay, and it was going to be significant. And the disciples, at the point that this passage in Luke 14 comes along, the disciples are beginning to pick up steam. Jesus' reputation is getting great. And the crowds are gathering and they're following. When he comes to a town, thousands will move outside that town to go listen to him teach. And at this point in Jesus' ministry in Luke 14, he turns around to say, listen, it's all sounding good, 
This sounds like it's going to be a massive movement, and I know that many of you as Jews are looking for a Messiah that's going to come and bring you power, and that power is going to give you the opportunity to get rid of the Roman government and take over the earth, and you're going to be empowered with the strength and the technology and the, the resources and the armies to have control of the earth. I know that's what many of you in the crowd, he doesn't say all this to him, but he says, I know what's in your mind. I know why you're following this, because it seems like this is a thing that's gaining a lot of steam. But what he tells him in Luke 14 is, listen, this is not going to be easy. Look with me in John 12, 25 and 26 is going to be on your screen. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my father will honor the one who serves me. Listen, there's a big difference in most of us wanting to have this part of our life to say, yes, I want to follow you, God. Yes, I want to be a part of what you want. But it's more than just us wanting it. It's more than us just trying harder. It's more than us just saying, well, maybe I could, maybe I could have a smaller one that might fit in my suitcase. Maybe, 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 my, maybe I could do it a little bit differently. Jesus is saying, listen, you're trying to stay in both sides. You're trying to stay in the flesh and what the world has. You're trying to get into the spiritual of what God has. And you're trying to merge these two in some kind of modern Christianity that doesn't exist. And Jesus says, man, you cannot do that. Those that are persecuted, that are not committed, will fall away. There's a book by Kyle Adelman that I really like. It's called Not a Fan. And when you first hear about it, you're thinking, okay, I'm not a fan of something. He actually compares the analogy of our commitment to Christ to the analogy of sports. So I like to pick on Pastor Blake because he's a Raiders fan. (laughs) There's like nine of them in the country, and so he's one of them, so it's kind of a prized possession to have. Even the Raiders aren't fans of themselves. They want to get traded, you know. So, But you know that he is a diehard fanatic fan when he still, after all these years, with all these losing seasons and all of these great hopes in the preseasons and then collapsing in the season and just horrible things that have happened to that uh, franchise, you've got to be fanatical to still be a Raiders fan or crazy, one of the two. But if they start winning, there'll be thousands that'll jump on that bandwagon. So I grew up as a Cowboys fan, and don't hate me, but I grew up as a Cowboys fan. There's times you want to give up. Tom Landry's fired. You just do not want to like Jerry Jones. But they start winning, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, he's not a complete idiot. Mostly, but not complete. You you know, you just, because when when you're a fan, when things are going bad, you stop wanting to be on the wagon. You just kind of want to stay off of it. Then they start winning again, you'll come back on. When the Rangers were on a race for a pennant, Attendance is getting higher than it's ever been. People want to go see the winning Rangers. Well, now they're in third place. Attendance is down. People say, oh, it's the weather. Well, it was hotter last time when they were running for the pennant. It's a matter of how committed we are to the actual affection for what we're seeking, or are we just that fair weather fan that wants things to be going in our direction? I'm not not an Aggie fan because I went to Texas Tech, but the Aggies did something pretty prestigious or pretty impressive back in the 80s. They were horrible. They were on the bottom of the Southwest Conference. They were ridiculous, and they still sold out every game. No other team in the Southwest Conference did that during a losing season, had sellouts, 
And you go, that's pretty impressive when you're committed to go to watch a losing team that wins two or three games that season, still has people standing the entire thing, which is crazy in itself. I'm impressed, but really, it's kind of dumb. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I never understand the Texas A&M deal when, when somebody says Texas A&M and they want to go, whoops, I don't get that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I know what they say. That's my favorite part about Texas A&M. You make fun of them, everybody kind of likes it. Um, so here's one of the things that's, that is important in this particular passage. Luke 14, 28 through 30. Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Now, if you've ever been to many parts of the world, but specifically Mexico and South America, their building technique is the opposite of this. They build when they can afford. They don't have home loans. They don't have extra money. They don't have a lot of banking systems that help you and stuff like that. So they buy eight cinder blocks when they can afford it, and then they'll buy 10 more. They'll buy a bag of cement. They'll put some rebar in the ground, and for a year, that property just has four corners of a concrete pillar going up. And then they can eventually put the header on it. And then they eventually can put block on it. And they build them like that. And then when the first floor is done, they'll move in and they'll leave the the rebar sticking up in the air. And then they'll build the next because they're building as they go. What Jesus is talking about in this passage is if you're a builder and you're going to build something, you count the cost before you do it. You don't just say, what the heck? And let's just jump in. You think about it. Otherwise, in a normal building situation, people would go, what's wrong with you? You didn't really count the cost. Look in 31 and 32 and 33, it says, Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Interesting point of this story here when Jesus used this illustration. What he's saying is, as a king, you have foreknowledge that somebody's coming against you. There's a lot of information that gets, takes a long time to move 10,000 or 20,000 soldiers and all their equipment, and as they keep the supply lines and everything they need, it's kind of a difficult task to keep that hidden. So the king knows, and so he takes account, sends out spies, they look at it and say, there's 20,000, you got 10,000, they're mighty warriors, you ain't got a chance. So Jesus uses this illustration, so then what would you do instead of sending your army out, send out there and try to buy them off? And say, listen, we could get into a battle, and you could probably win, and you'll come take the spoils of war, and you'll have all of that. But before we get to that, why don't you just tell me the price, and I'll just pay you, and all of our men live. He's using this illustration to say this. What you're doing is you're bartering with the enemy. You just made a deal with the person that's your enemy. And so both of you got what you wanted. You stayed safe, and they got the spoils of war without fighting. That seems like a win-win deal. The problem is you're not supposed to make friends with your enemy. You're supposed to stand true to who you are. In the next part of the passage, it says, Luke uh, 34 and 35, it says, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit for neither the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is setting them up to say this. Listen, I know you've all gathered because you're impressed. You're hearing of miracles and mighty work. This is exciting stuff, and everybody wants to be a part of the circus. Everyone wants to come and enjoy the spoils of success or 
the, the, the excitement of whatever's overflowing. But you're not all going to make it because I'm telling you it's going to get tough. You need to count the cost before you jump in. You need to not think that you can blend in and keep your culture and your expertise and your lifestyle and still be a follower of mine. He says it's very important that you realize that you are being called to a commitment of life, not a comfortable option to enjoy. Jesus later explains on several for you on this earth to have kingdom. I'm not here to give you what you want. I'm here to give you what you need. Your want is to be successful. Now, let's just put this in context. If I were, just say in the political campaign, we've got a presidential campaign coming up, that I'm a candidate, and if I'm successful, I promise everyone that votes for me, I'll give you a better job. You'd be making, and, and, and I can actually hold up to it. I'm not just saying I make the promise, because everybody makes that promise, right? Um, but, but, but that I could actually come through with that. And I say, listen, you're making $50 a, um, a week, I'll make it $5,000 a week. You're making $500,000 a year, I'll make it $250,000 a year. Uh, 2.5 million, sorry, that was, you're going, wow, that is a politician. <laughs> I, I can do all of this. I can make all this happen for you. Vote for me and I will make all your dreams come true. Reference? Pedro, okay. So, if you vote for me, all, my, all your dreams will come true. If I were to make that promise and I could make it happen, most people would follow me, right? Because we will follow the person or the thing that gives us what we want. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you need. And there's a big difference in those two things. So, which cross are we more comfortable with? Something like the paper clips that's super simple and easy to hide. Your boss comes around, you can just take it apart. Well, you mostly you can take it apart. Your pencils, you can just say, oh, my kid was playing at my desk. I don't know how that happened. Or we walk around with the cross because that's what Christ told us to pick up every day. Now, if I were to tweet something at this point, I'd probably say the large crowds traveled with Jesus because up to this point, they were thinking they were going, it was going to be hashtag mistake. Listen, Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says this, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many will enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. Jesus continues to tell us this is not the easy path. If I were to tweet this, I'd say, Jesus said, to be my disciple, you have to give up everything, even things that seem good and valuable. Put nothing in front of me. Or a disciple is fully committed and aligned with Christ. You are all in, not holding anything back and trusting no one as your source. The source of the cross is Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Even though I can physically pick it up, and I might need some help, Chach, but if I could physically pick it up and I can carry it around, right now I can physically do this. But if this cross was 10 times as heavy, I couldn't pick it up heavier. You can't carry the cross. You can't be a disciple of Christ in our own power. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do that. And if we don't tap into the right source 
then we're feeding from the wrong source that's telling us it's going to be comfortable. It's going to be easy. It's not that big of a deal. You can have casual Christianity. That's not the message that Jesus is teaching. It's expensive. It's hard. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You and I, especially in the Western world, believe we can blend these two thoughts. I'm a new creation, so I've been sprinkled with Christian dust, and I'm ready to do it. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do it in my own strength. I'm going to do everything I can to make it happen. And that's tapped into our source. And Jesus said, if you're looking for something to make you happy, you're looking in the wrong place. We are called to be fanatic disciples, not merely fans. And I really believe that most of the church that we see functioning around the world is promoting fan, fandom, fanhood, instead of fanatichood. Because we want the message to be pretty simple and easily embraced. We don't really want Jesus standing on the stage going, listen, if you're going to follow me, they're going to hate you. You could lose your job. You could lose some of your family. It could be so expensive, so extraordinarily expensive. You might look back one day going, what in the world was I thinking? But when we're tapped into the source, we really don't ever go back to that thought. As we close today, let me give you two things that might be going on in some of us. One, you may be asking, am I even a follower of Christ? Do I even know really expensive? And so you may be questioning, am I even really a fanatic or am I just okay at being a fan? And for others, it may be, what do I need to submit What do I need to relinquish? What do I need to just say, God, through the work and the source of the Holy Spirit, what do I need to stop working at doing and allowing God to work through me to do? I can't pick up that cross every day in the flesh, but through the work of the Holy Spirit, we certainly can. Do we have a shared love for God and the things of this world at the same time? I think that's a pivotal question that we ought to ask ourselves. Am I trying to blend these two thoughts? Because it's easier to think we can do that. But it's the very thing Jesus says at the beginning. You can't do it. And if you have such a love and and, and such a relationship with your parents or your family that you think God is one and they're right there, God's saying there is no number two anywhere close. It is me, and then everything comes out of that. Because we can't love other people as God loves us, but God can love other people through us like he does. Are we just looking for some comfortable way to be a follower of God, or do we really, really understand the call and the price to be a disciple? It's a powerful place to live. And I'm going to encourage you today to to examine where we are. Do we pick up that cross? Do we love things of this world more than we love God? Because if we do, we're not living out of the source of what the work of Christ did. We're living out of our best humanity.
And it's going to fail you when your energy fails, when your health fails, when tragedy comes in our life or struggles. Let's pray together. Father, as we finish today, I just thank you, God, for your amazing relationship with us. I thank you for a desire, even as Pastor Robert spoke several weeks ago about how we are to love our neighbor. God, you You want us to love our neighbor and to love ourselves as you love us. You are the source that runs through us to do that. So these passages are not in conflict. But if we exalt the love relationships or material possessions or success of this world to a place that that is the most important, then you're not the most important. Which means if those things go away, our value is gone. But Father, when we put our trust in you, our value can never be gone. It can never devalue. It can never be lessened. We are who you say we are. And we're a child of the King. Father, you would empower us to live that way. I pray that, God, this week you would help us to submit our will to the will of the Father, that you would guide us and do what you want to do in us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.